on this show, we talk about murder and true crime, but the reason that I am fascinated by it, and I think the reason that so much of the world is fascinated by true crime is that it comes in many, many different, I guess the term is not styles and flavors, but styles and flavors, right? Like there's so many different types of crimes from the boring and mundane that people don't really remember to the things that were big at the time and have been lost to history to the things that make people notorious serial killers or people that make history because whatever the crime is, is infamous and notorious and not so much the person, right? So today we're going to talk about one of these infamous figures and a well, a rather infamous act that I don't think anyone's going to forget. The thing here is that the person we're talking about today is from Australia. So the case is not as well known in the U.S., but in Australia, it is interesting and infamous for the fact that one, the person we're going to talk about today is a woman. And for two, she is the only woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of release in Australia's history. We are going to be talking about the infamous Catherine Knight. Now, if you don't know anything about Catherine Knight, I won't give much away here. Well, plot twist a little bit. But what I found fascinating about this case is that there's a certain air of it. Not only is Catherine Knight a convicted murderer, but the events that unfolded have led people to believe that she is also a cannibal. Now, as we'll talk about later, Catherine doesn't have any real memory of what happened, or so she says, and she says that she certainly did not eat the person that she murdered, but I think what we will do is hash out all the facts, and I'll let you come to your own conclusions about that part of the story. This is Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. Hi guys, it's V. The voice you just heard was my wonderfully talented, creative, amazing friend, Tanisha Brianna, and she wanted you guys to know that she is the author of two wonderful books and she is currently working on a third. They are collections of poetry that are beautiful and insightful and 
so, so wonderful. If you have not checked out either of these books, they are available for purchase on Amazon. Um, they are, the first one is called Naked. And then her second book that came out is called Layers. Both are phenomenal. I have them both. If you're still looking for last minute stocking stuffers, they are certainly something that you should pick up for your friends and family. She also has amazing merch. I have a sweatshirt that I purchased from her that I love. It is so soft. It's so warm. It says, let me be your muse. And that is very, very cool to me because she is a writer and I think that is dope. She has so many other content, um, so many other like pullovers and hoodies and crop top hoodies, which I, which is what I was trying to say, which I bungled badly, but she has cropped hoodies. She has coffee mugs. She has pins and stickers, all kinds of things that you can go over there and check out. Um, like she said, that website is merch.tanishabriana.com. I will put the link in the show notes so that you can go check it out. I think she is running a special from now until the end of the year. So you have two weeks to capitalize on that discount. Go get yourself some amazing sweatshirts, some hoodies for the people in your life. Let them be your muse. You can be their muse. She also has one that um, says layers on the front. She has a lot of different ones. I also have a tee that is orange with floral print that has the name of her book layers on the front that I absolutely adore and wear all the time. Guys, they're affordable t-shirts. They're not overpriced. They're very good quality. They wash well, dry well. I've had fantastic, fantastic luck with everything that I've purchased. You are going to love it. Go over there, get yourself for merch, get yourself a copy of one of her books. Hell, get them both. You definitely should. Why not get both books, get a copy for yourself, give one to give to friends, and then get yourself an awesome sweatshirt to stay warm for the rest of the winter. It's been 70 degrees here in Dallas, but as soon as it gets under 60, I am throwing that sucker on. So remember, shop at merch.tanishabriana.com and you can get your copy of Naked and or Layers on Amazon.com as well. Thanks, guys, and we're going to get back to the show. Catherine Mary Knight was born October 24th, 1955 in the town of Aberdeen in New South Wales's Hunter Valley. Her mom's name was Barbara and her dad's name was Ken. And uh, they had an interesting relationship because Ken and Barbara's relationship um, happened because Barbara was fooling around with Ken on her original husband, Jack. Um, so Jack Ruhan, who was her husband, and uh, Ken Knight, both families, the Knights and the Ruhans, were both well-known in the rural town that they were from. So this whole affair was like a major scandal. So two of the Ruhans' four children stayed with their father while the two youngest were sent to live with their aunt in Sydney because of this whole fallout. Uh, so Catherine Knight was actually a twin um and she was the youngest tw the younger twin and she was born to barbara and ken from this affair um so when jack died in 1959 the two children that he had sent away to go live in sydney with an aunt ended up moving in with the knight family and barbara's grandmother so catherine's great grandmother was apparently um indigenous australian and she had married an Irishman and she was very proud of this fact that she was able to, I guess, pass in some ways. Um, so she liked to think of her own family as being Aboriginal. And this was kept a family secret because this was 1955. And if we know anything, racists span the globe. Um, there's no nice way to really put it, but because there were racial tensions and 
Um, there was considerable racism in the area. It was just kept a secret so that the children wouldn't have to deal with the backlash of it while they were living their lives and going to school, which, you know, if that's something that you can do, I, I, I can't be mad at it, really. So apart from her twin, the only person that Catherine was really close to was her uncle Oscar, who was a champion horseman, and Catherine loved horses as well. So when Oscar committed suicide in 1969, uh, she was devastated and she continues to maintain even behind bars to this day that his ghost visits with her. Um, so this is when the family moved back to Aberdeen in 1969 after they felt like tensions had cooled from this whole affair. So Catherine's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who was openly violent and intimidating, and he would rape their mother up to 10 times a day. And so Barbara in told, often told her daughter's intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. And later when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to do something sexually that she didn't want to do, Barbara told her to put up with it and to stop, to quote, stop complaining, end quote. I will just take this moment to say that consent is sexy. Consent is always warranted. It does not matter if you are in a relationship with somebody. It does not matter how long you have known them. It does not matter if you were married. It does not matter if you were not married. It does not matter anything. If you did not consent to whatever the sexual act is, it is rape. You do not have to put up with that. It is illegal. A person cannot force you to do any type of sexual act that you do not want to do. I do not care how you know them. So... I am absolutely against this line of advice, but those were different times, I guess you could say. But I'm telling you now, as a woman in the year 2021, that is absolutely inexcusable and you do not have to do that. I'll get off my soapbox now and we'll get back to the story. So Knight claims that while her dad was coercing her mother into sex acts and raping her, that he was also she was being sexually abused by several members of her family. She says implicitly that her father was not sexually abusing her, but other family members were. And this continued until she was 11 years old. Um, so although psychiatrists, when they were examining her, have minor doubts about the details of these encounters, they accept her claim and it is widely accepted that this did happen because all of her family members confirmed that this abuse happened. So, Again, I think we can chalk up the details not lining up or being a bit fuzzy to the fact that all of this happened before she was 11, um, but people are saying that it did happen. So Catherine, by all accounts, was actually a very pleasant girl, but she experienced these uncontrollable murderous rages in response to minor upsets. She attended Musselwell Brook High School and she was really a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. And she assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. But in contrast, when not in a rage, Knight was said to be a model student and often earned awards for her good behavior. 
So it's an odd dichotomy right and right there. And we'll get into what that may be attributed to. Some people have said that, well, the three psychologists who examined her after her arrest said that they diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder. So this may be what plays into why she has these, these bouts and mood swings. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Catherine leaves school at 15 without having to have learned to read or write. And so she gains employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. So about 12 months later, when she's 16, she leaves to start what she refers to as her dream job, uh, cutting up meat at a local abattoir, which is where she was completely quickly promoted to boning and giving her own set of butcher knives. Um, so abattoir for us would be um, like a, a meat packing plant or like a basically like a slaughterhouse. I should say meat packing, a slaughterhouse is what it would be. So a 16 year old is giving a, a, a set of butcher knives, which she loves. And at home, she hung the butcher knives over her head by her bed so that they would always be handy if she needed them, but also that she could look at them before she fell asleep. And this is a habit that she continued up until she was arrested everywhere that she lived. So Catherine, as far as love, first met a hard drinking coworker, David Stanford Collette in 1973, and she completely dominated him. If Kel had gotten into a fight at the hotel, Knight would step in and back him up with her fists without fail. If she was ready to jump into any bar fight anytime. In Aberdeen, she was renowned for offering armed combat to anyone who upset her, which could be the smallest slight. So she was off the rails a lot. So Knight and Kellett married in 1974 at her request. Uh, with the couple arriving at the service on her motorcycle with a very intoxicated Kellett like on the back. Apparently Kellett really didn't want to get married and Knight basically forced him into it, which is why he showed up drunk. So as soon as they arrive, Knight's mother, Barbara, gives David Kellett some advice. She says, quote, the old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She's got, she told me, or this is David talking about Barbara. And he says, Barbara told him, quote, she told me she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere, end quote. What a way to start a marriage, right? On their wedding night, because this gets worse, Catherine tries to strangle David Kellett. Uh, when asked what happened, Knight explained that it was because he fell asleep after they had only had sex three times. So not only is Catherine prone to violent mood swings and rages. She also has an insatiable sexual appetite, which was enough to almost get her husband killed on their first night together. Which the violence does not stop there, obviously. The marriage was really violent. And on one occasion, a very heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of David Collette's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition because they were in the finals. 
In fear for his life, David fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge her, but Knight was now on her best behavior and somehow managed to talk David out of drop, you know, out of pressing charges. So she got off the hook for that. So in May of 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, Kellett left her for another woman and moved to Queensland, apparently unable to cope with Catherine's possessive and violent behavior. The next day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in the stroller down the main street, violently throwing the stroller from side to side. Catherine was then admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Knight placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due to come through, then stole an axe and went into town and threatened to kill several people. A man known in the district as Old Ted, who was foraging near this railway line, heard Melissa crying and was able to find and rescue her before any harm came to her. By all accounts, though, this was only minutes before the train passed through. So basically, baby Melissa was saved minutes before this train was about to come run her over. At that point, Catherine was taken into custody and arrested again and taken back to St. Elmo's Hospital, but apparently recovered from whatever rage she was in. She was able to sign herself out of the mental hospital the next day. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded she drive the, demanded that the woman drive her to Queensland to find David Kellett. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Knight had taken a little boy hostage and was threatening him with the knife as well. After a bit of a standoff, she was disarmed and the police attacked her with brooms and she was admitted to another psychiatric hospital. Knight told the nurses here that she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired David Kellett's car, which had allowed him to leave and then kill both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. When police informed Kellett of the incident, he left his girlfriend, and along with his mother, they both moved back to Aberdeen to support Catherine. Now, I will say, that, hey, kudos to him, because again, I do not think that mental illness precludes you from love or having people care about you or wanting to help you manage your illness. What I do think is that when the person is directing harm at you that is so specific in this case, I, I probably would have packed my mom and I up and just fled town. I don't know that I would have come back to support her. I think I would have tried to get custody of, of my kid and just cut ties and changed my name and Never hope to hear from her again, but that's just me. So once David and his mother get back to Aberdeen, um, Knight, who is overjoyed to see them, is released on August 9th of 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law, mother and along with David Kellett, they moved to Woodridge, which is a suburb of Brisbane, where she obtained a job at a meat works packing plant, basically the same type of labor that she had been doing. So on the 6th of March in 1980, they had another daughter named Natasha Marie. 
1984, Knight left Kellett and moved in, first with her parents in Aberdeen, and then to a rented house in nearby Musselbrook. So although she turned, returned to her work at the slaughterhouse or abattoir, she injured her back the following year and had to go on disability. So she was getting a pension, um, but she didn't need, she wasn't able to work or do the thing that she really loved, her dream job. Um, so no longer needing to rent a house close to the job, um, she was able to basically use her disability and her children as a way to get on, you know, government assistance. Um, and she was giving a housing commission house in Aberdeen. So I, I guess the best way to liken this would be like um, maybe like the HUD program that we have in the United States. So after she's left David Kellett, which I guess she just decided her infatuation with him was over, which probably for him is a good thing. She meets a 38 year old minor named David Saunders in 1986. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he did keep his own apartment separately. Knight soon became jealous regarding what he did when she wasn't around or when he would go to his own apartment and she would often throw him out of the house. And so he would move back into his apartment and then she would eventually, you know, show up and, and wallow and beg for him to return to her home. So in 1987, she got so upset with him that she went into one of these rages or fits that she would go into and she cut the throat of his two month old puppy in front of him and told him that that was an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair. And then she also did all this before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan like she did David Kellett. <coughs> in June of 1988, she gave both birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted Saunders to put a deposit on the house with the lady who had knocked him unconscious with a frying pan. Um, and Knight paid off the house with her workers' compensation when that came through in 1989. Uh, Knight decorated the house quite on brandly with animal skins and skulls and horns and rusty animal traps and leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes and pitchforks, the perfect things, you know, to have in your house when you have two small children. Uh, so no space, including the ceilings, were left uncovered. I'm sure that is a terrifying place for small children, and yet they were there. So after an argument where she hit David Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors, he decided he would move back to his apartment in Scone, but when he later returned home, he found out that she had cut up all of his clothing. So Saunders took a long service lead leave from work and went into hiding. Makes sense to me. Knight tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was, good people around him. Good for David. I would hope that my friends would at least do that for me because wow. So several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found out that Knight had gone to the police and told them that she was afraid of him. And they issued her with an 
apprehended violence order or an AVO against him. So that would be like a restraining order here in America. So basically she was the one doing all the, the domestic abuse towards David. And when he reached out to try to see his child, she slapped him with a restraining order and told the police that she was afraid of him. So then she's moved on from David and now we are with John Chillingworth. In 1990, Knight became pregnant by a 43-year-old former abattoir co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy named Eric. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man that she had been having an affair with for some time. So... John Price, or Pricey as he was called, was the father of three children when Knight had her affair with him. So everyone always says that John was a terrific guy and he was liked by everyone who knew him. He was married and his marriage ended in 1988. Um, and so while his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the two older children lived with him. Um, so Pricey was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation when she moved into his house in 1995, but his children liked her and he was making a lot of money working in the local mines. And so apart from the violent arguments that they were having at first, he felt like, you know, life for them was pretty good. So in 1998, about three years later, they had a fight over Pricey's refusal to get married to Catherine. And in retaliation, she videotaped items that he had stolen from his job and then sent the tapes to his boss. And I will preference this by saying the things that he were, had quote unquote stolen were out of date medical kits that he had scavenged from the company like uh, trash. But she had him, basically he was fired from the job that he had had for 17 years for basically getting things out of the trash, like outdated medical kits, which essentially that means, you know, bandages, gauze, that type of stuff. So it all has an expiration date. I'm sure it was probably fine. So he was just fired because she made it look like he was stealing things from them that he shouldn't have been stealing, which I don't know what the policy is on dumpster diving at your job, but I guess you can't do it. At any rate, uh, after she got him kicked, you know, after she got him uh, fired from the job that he'd had for 17 years that was paying for the house that they were living in and helping support um, his two children, well, three children and all of her children, um, he kicked her out, which obviously made sense. He told her that she needed to return to her own home while the news of what she had done to him spread through town. So, as with all the women in Catherine's life, you would think they're all the men in Catherine's life. You would think that this would be enough for them to call it quits and just leave her alone. Right. But something about Catherine keeps the fellas coming back. And although this is not necessarily a PG show, I will keep that comment to myself. So a few months later, Price comes back, restarts the relationship with Catherine. And although he is, you know, was willing to take her back. He does set a few boundaries here and he's refusing to allow her to move in with him. Uh, so basically the fighting between them has become unbearable and so frequent that now most of Pricey's friends would no longer have anything to do with him if he was going to be with Catherine. So at this point, we've seen Catherine cycle through several men and 
the common denominator here is her flying into these unprecedented, ridiculous rages just at the thought of maybe these people doing her wrong and they were able to escape, which I think is fascinating. But what we will find out is that unfortunately, Pricey wasn't as lucky as these other guys. And we'll get into the final act after we take a break here to talk about some psychology. And we're back to talk about a little psychology just a bit. So two different things. So I had mentioned earlier in the show that Catherine was diagnosed by three different psychologists that evaluated her after her arrest as having borderline personality disorder. Um, so what I wanted to talk about is borderline personality disorder to some extent, and then a little bit about cannibalism as well. So borderline personality disorder is dis defined by the, the, the BD, um, by the DSM, um, as a serious mental illness, and it centers on the ability to manage one's emotions effectively. Um, so the disorder can be caused by any number of things, including emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, or any combination of these things, loss, neglect, bullying, all of these things that Catherine has experienced, right? She was physically and sexually abused. Um, she was neglected to some extent because she, these people in her family were able to commit this physical and sexual abuse against her without anybody noticing. Um, and then she experienced the loss of her uncle Oscar, who was really one of the only people that she loved or cared about. And some people are more likely to develop um, borderline personality disorder due to their biological genetic makeup and of course, as I briefly explained a minute ago, harmful childhood experiences can increase that risk. So due to intense internal emotional conflict, someone with borderline personality disorder might take unnecessary risks, have intense mood swings, and suffer severe bouts of anger, depression, or anxiety. So this seems to be Catherine on the nose. They may have difficulty managing daily tasks at home, performing at work, and or maintaining relationships. So this may also be somewhat Catherine as well. Um, so some other things associated with borderline personality disorder, um, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, um, and often suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts, as well as substance abuse. Obviously, everyone that has a diagnosis of bipolar personality disorder or borderline personality disorder does not experience all these things. Um, these are just things that can often accompany it. Um, in the past, it was believed that people with borderline personality disorder were nearly impossible to treat. Um, but today we know that that's really not true. Um, it can be difficult to treat, but if an individual really wants to be better and get better, they can have great success in doing so with the help of therapy and medication. I think in Catherine's position, she wasn't getting any help or treatment and the people around her were just like, hey, you know, don't blink your eyes too hard or breathe too deeply and make Catherine mad because then she'll totally stab you instead of maybe looking at getting her some help or medication. And I think it's interesting that she was hospitalized twice for, you know, trying to harm other people and going into these murderous rages and nobody thinking that maybe she needed to be in long-term care 
or on some type of drugs to stabilize her mood. I, I found that fascinating, but again, I think it was a different time, and I think the fields of mental health were not as developed as they are now, so I think maybe treatment suggestions and what we can do as far as medication and therapy have changed greatly and improved, and maybe back then they didn't have those things. So, a study published in 2016 found that, quote, according to measures, um, borderline personality dis disorder is moderately to strongly associated with the range of criminal behaviors among psychiatric inpatients, likely owing to these individuals' extreme proclivity towards disinhibi in disinhibition and poor emotional regulation, end quote. So in layman's terms, that basically just means that people that have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, um, there is some link to them having criminal behaviors. And this is because they, you know, are uninhibited. They have mood swings and they don't emotion, uh, they don't regulate their emotions properly. So things like having rages over the smallest perceived slight would be an example of this. This, however, is only one study, and it's a fairly small one because you have to keep in mind that we have talked about um, biases in studies and samples before on this show. And so when you are doing studies, samples have to be representative of the population, right? And if the only population that the sample came from are psychiatric inpatients, that's pretty small. Um, so while it's true there's a high percentage of people with borderline personality disorder and other mental health disorders in the prison population, only three to five percent of violent acts can ever be attributed to people with a serious mental illness. In fact, people with a mental illness are far more likely to be victims of a violent crime compared to the rest of the population. And I just want to make sure I make that part very, very clear. Having a mental illness does not mean that you were a murderer or that you were going to kill people or that you were a danger to others or that you were a danger to yourself or to yourself. It can mean that that in some instances for some people, but more often than not, they people with mental health issues are at a disadvantage because people that do not have mental health struggles or issues are more likely to take advantage of them than they are of other people. So in other words, bipolar disorder might help explain Catherine Knight's extremely violent behavior, but it is extremely rare that bipolar disorder causes someone to do unspeakably horrible, evil things. So it's certainly not the only contributing factor to Catherine's violent outbursts. And still, it's clear that Catherine probably had a combination of genetic factors and you know, her tragic childhood experience working against her, which, like I said, you know, Catherine had a twin and they obviously didn't take the same path in life. And so why one sibling can wind up so deeply mentally disturbed and the other one leads her a regular, normal, compare, you know, well, comparatively normal life is really still a mystery to us that we're trying to unlock in the human mind. So now that we've talked about bipolar not bipolar, Jesus. Sorry, guys, not bipolar. Borderline personality disorder for a bit. Now we have to move on to kind of the tougher part of the story, right? So when people hear the word cannibal, what's the first thing that comes to mind? So do me a favor, close your eyes. Sorry, my dog is barking or growling because he hears somebody outside the window while I'm recording. He's being a good little chihuahua guard dog, but I digress. Do me a favor, close your eyes right now, relax, 
clear your mind. When I say the word cannibal, what is the first thing that comes to mind? For me, it's the silence of the lambs filling Hannibal Lecter, right? Um, and a serial killer that would eat his victim's organs with a glass of wine with fava beans and a nice Chianti, right? And I think that's what we all think of when we have our first viable memory of what it is to know what a cannibal is. And so while Hannibal Lecter is a fictional character, he's he's based on a, a several, a hodgepodge of real life murderers who dined on their victims after murdering them. So cannibals have always existed throughout human history, according to anthropologists. Um, it's been a care for overpopulation, a means of survival during famines, even a way to contend with grief. Um, so nearly every culture has consumed human beings for some reason at one point in time. But what's not so common are murderers who kill for sport and then devour their victims. Of the estimated 2,000 active serial killers in the United States, yes, I said 2,000 active serial killers in the United States, between five and 10 are probably cannibals as well, says Dr. Eric Hickey, who is a professor of forensic psychology at Walden University. Uh, cannibals, Hickey says, are almost never true psychopaths, and they you know, those are the people who have trouble making meaningful connections with other human beings. In general, they tend to develop extreme attachments to people and they suffer from neediness and low self-esteem. And I think that that could be said of Catherine Knight. Hickey says, cannibals tend to feel really insecure and can't have normal relationships. Eating their victims gives them a sense of power because their victims can never leave. Because cannibals have these attachments, their victims' deaths are usually quick, wanting to spare the other person pain. Not interested in their victim suffering like Ted Bundy was. They're not looking for sadism. They simply want access to the body. I will say that this is going to be a bit different for Catherine. That part doesn't necessarily um, describe what happened um, with her, but we'll get into that some more here shortly. And what's more, cannibalism is usually a sexual act. Whenever killers eat other people, they're acting out fantasies about relationships and intimacy. And they'll start experimenting with sexual fantasies about voyeurism and necrophilia as they're fantasizing and they explore that behavior. You don't usually see people jump from killing to eating. It starts with maybe watching a person sleep and then maybe you drug victims and then you want to be with someone who's buried or, or unconscious. It progresses in, it, you know, in steps. So there are a few killers that I think are in the, the general lexicon of society, right? When we think about people that consumed their victims. Uh, so the first one probably is Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, so when the police raided his apartment in 1991, they found various body parts from 17 victims in his freezer. And he later admitted to eating the thighs, the hearts, and the organs of many of these victims. As way back as 1936, Albert Fish was executed for the murder of 10-year-old Grace Budd, who he had lured away from her parents under the pretense of going to a birthday party. Um, he had strangled her and dismembered her, but then he didn't stop there. He sent a letter to her family detailing how he had eaten parts of her body after she died. Boone Helm, 
this is an old one, 1828, Levi Boone Helm spent his, ten year, his teen years goading peoples into fights and ran off to California in his early 20s after murdering his cousin. Later, when he was in Oregon, he began to develop a taste for human flesh, and he cannibalized a friend who had died by suicide and then began killing and eating ranchers and other fugitives while he was on the run from law enforcement himself. Also, a more recent one, Gregory Scott Hale. Before his 2014 arrest, Gregory Scott Hale of Summitville, Tennessee, was posting disturbing things on his Facebook. According to reports, Hale routinely joked about killing, eating, and burying people in his backyard. But Hale's musings had quickly become a reality. After picking up a woman at a local liquor store, Hale brought her back to his house, murdered her, and then admitted to, to police later that he had eaten part of her body. And lastly, we'll talk about Andre Chikatilo. He was nicknamed the Butcher of Rostov and the Red Ripper. He was one of the most pro prolific killers in the Ukraine, confessing to 56 murders, although he was only charged with 53, during his 12-year-long crime spree. Some experts think that Chikatilo, who started killing in the late 70s, became interested in cannibalism at an early age. He claimed his mother would tell him about a, an older brother who had been killed and cannibalized by their neighbors. Although the story was never verified, it would match up with the aftermath of the great Ukrainian famine of the 1930s in which widespread cannibalism was documented. As an adult, Chikatilo would lure young women into the woods, rape and mutilate them, and then eat their sexual organs, as well as removing body parts like their nose and eyes. Chikatilo was arrested and executed for his crimes in 1994. So again, as you can see, there are many instances, although over a small sample population, of people that have been caught and admitted to being cannibals, and very often it is linked to some type of sexual proclivity that they have regarding it and this wanting to be close to their victim. In some cases, the kills are very quick because they aren't interested in the sadism part of it, but more so in just having the body with them and having this level of needing, needing the person to stay with them forever. So I hope that that kind of clears up where we're going with this. Um, as it pertains to Catherine, we'll get into a bit and I'll tell you why I don't think it exactly lines up with her and why there's some questions about whether or not she may actually be a cannibal, but all signs point to that perhaps she did eat this person, but we shall see here shortly. Let's finish the show.